you know, the other day, Leanne and I were sitting on the porch, uh, just looking out at the, at the street, and all of a sudden she said to me, you're not even listening to me, are you? And I thought, that's a strange way to start a conversation. <laughs> no, not really. Not, not, that, that could happen, but uh, I don't think that that happened. Um, selective, selective listening seems to be uh, an epidemic problem among children, certainly not my children, uh, but you know, they, they, didn't, they didn't hear, some children don't, don't hear uh, what their parents said, even if they said it multiple times, multiple tones, um, yet they always hear ice cream. I mean, we could be locked in a closet at your house and my children at my house, and they would know that we talked about, about ice cream. And they might not remember that you told them they're not allowed to hit or take or go to X, Y, or Z place. And yet, if you made a promise about eating out three years ago, just locked in. Uh, there's a lot of things that we could forget or you know, accidentally or just not be listening. Uh, it can be a common problem. It's certainly a problem that we see throughout Scripture of people not listening to God's Word. Uh, when God's Word comes to a people in a variety of different ways, even God's word, when it comes, there's no guarantee that people will listen. We'd start at the beginning, right? Well, I mean, Adam and Eve, certainly. Uh, we, could th- we could talk about Cain. God warned Cain about his sin. It's crouching at the door. Uh, Cain did not listen. God warned Noah about the coming judgment. He did listen. Uh, Esau knew God's promises, but he despised them. Uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Others knew God's promises and delighted in them. Uh, Saul rejected God's word. David received God's word. Israel and Judah often disregarded God's word through his prophets, even though they were his covenant people. And yet the Assyrians in Nineveh listened and responded to Jonah's what seems to have been less than willing preaching. Uh, Many seemingly faithful Israelites, very clean on the outside, including priests and Pharisees, rejected Jesus' word. But prostitutes and tax collectors, even Gentiles, listened and followed him. And we see that pattern continuing through Acts. Where Paul would go to a synagogue, preach to the Jews. They would reject that Jesus is the Messiah. And he would say, fine, I'm going to go to the Gentiles who do believe. At the beginning of the book of Haggai, as we discussed last week, the prophet delivers a strong rebuking message from God to the people. This is essentially what God said to summarize it. You have left my house a ruin, so I have ruined your lives. There's actually a play on words with that that ruin there. You have left my house a ruin, so I have ruined you. And this was followed by a call to demonstrate very specific repentance. In verse 8, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. So the big question as we move from last week into this week or from verse 11 into verse 12, holding our breath as it were between those paragraphs is how will the people respond? Because if you followed the people of Israel hearing the word of the Lord through a variety of prophets, uh, you probably would have a pessimistic expectation. How will the people respond? Will they reject Haggai's message? Maybe even kill him? It's like, well, nobody would do that. Read your Bible. Their ancestors did that repeatedly. We don't like your message. We don't like you. And they killed them. Will these people, will, will these descendants back in Jerusalem, will they reject Haggai's message? Will they ignore Haggai's message? Will they continue to offer lip service to God while really pursuing their own priorities? Oh, the temple, yeah, we'll, we'll get around to that. Just the time has not yet come. The time's not right for us to rebuild the temple. Will they continue to ignore, will they ignore Haggai's message? Or will they remain so consumed with other things that they forget Haggai's message entirely. What was it that he said again? Sorry, I was distracted. I've got the harvest I need to bring in. I've got a few more panels I need to put up on my house. 
How will the people respond to Haggai's message of rebuke and his call to repentance? We are in the book of Haggai, uh, chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 12 to 15. Trust that you have a copy of God's Word. Please do turn and follow along if you are not already. Haggai, chapter 1, verses 12 to 15. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. So how did the people respond to Haggai's sermon? They obeyed it as the word of God, and they repented of replacing the priority of God's glory expressed in his house. They repented of replacing the priority of God's glory with the pursuit of their own comfort and safety, their own plans, their own lives. I hope and pray that the Holy Spirit has been and will continue to convict us of our sin, to call us to repentance as his word is proclaimed from this pulpit today and every week until he returns. But the question always remains, how will we respond to God's rebuke? Not, not all of God's word is uh, that which reproves and rebukes, but God's word given by him, breathed from his mouth, is profitable for doctrine and for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that, that we as men and women of God may be more mature than we are, whatever level we're at, may be perfect, complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So God's word in this passage, last week's passage, certainly contains a matter of rebuke asking, what about our priorities? So trusting that the Holy Spirit takes his word and makes it effective in his people, I trust that each of us felt, at least in some way, a rebuke from the Lord last week, because none of our priorities perfectly line up with his. How will we respond to God's rebuke? I think that there are three points At least I have three points I'm going to go through from our passage. They are in quick uh, preview, pay attention, remember the gospel, and trust that God is at work. This will take us through this text this morning as we see this is how they responded and this is how we are to respond. First, when confronted with God's rebuke from his word, spoken by a, a pastor, by a friend, by our own reading, How do we respond? First, we pay attention. Don't reject it. Don't don't say, you know, I don't like what God has to say. Like in a sense, we could follow up with, what does that matter? (laughs) Right? Don't reject it. Many do. I just don't want to hear what God has to say. I don't I don't care. Like that may be what he says about my life, about my priorities, about my money, but I just don't care. I don't like it. That would be, I don't, I don't like what it has to say. Don't ignore it. I, I just, uh, whatever. I just don't, I don't care, right? I mean, the, this is from God, but I don't, I don't want to hear it, or this, is, this, this may be from God or may not. I just, I don't, I'm not interested. And then certainly don't forget it, right? What did God say? Again, we return to God's word often to, to hear that. May he give us better memory than we have in other circumstances, to change in these ways. Paying attention to God's word. We could ask first, why should we pay attention to God's correction? And really the answer very simply is simply because it is from God. If if he is speaking, we must listen. Um, It's like those, those two definitive Nearly all powerful words that siblings say to each other, the end to all arguments, the end to all disagreements. Mom said, 
dad said. We hear God's word. If it is God's word, that should produce a response of paying attention to it as God's word. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians and praised them uh, for this very thing. How did they respond to Paul's preaching when he came to their city? 1 Thessalonians 2 said, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So it wasn't just Paul or Timothy or Silas or any of the others that were preaching, Apollos coming to different places. It wasn't just those men, just as this was not just Haggai. It was God speaking through his messengers, which throughout scripture we find him doing more often than he would do anything else. So when you read the Bible, if you truly believe it is God's word that you are reading, and when you hear preaching, if you truly believe it is God's word being proclaimed, then you had better listen. You must pay attention. That's the question. Is this God's word? If it is, that demands a certain response from you. And I would say, if it isn't God's word that you're reading, right? If you're like, no, this isn't God's word, then then why are you reading it at all? If this isn't God revealing himself to you, then what's what's the point? And if, if it isn't God's perfect truth being preached, not by a perfect messenger, perfect truth coming from his word, then what are you doing here? I mean, there's, there's, there are other things to do with your time. And if you come to here because it is God's word, but it isn't God's word being proclaimed, then what am I doing here, right? Like, get me out of here if I'm not proclaiming God's truth from his word. But if it is God's word that we're reading, that we're hearing preached, then we had better listen, better pay attention to that because it is God's word, right? This is not really a question. Let me evaluate. This is the word of God. Um, Genesis to Revelation. God's word through his messenger, prophet, pastor, friend, brother and sister, God's word through his messenger is still God's word and carries the authority of God's word. Not not by how well it's communicated by the prophet or the pastor or the friend, but what God's word says does not lose its authority or its power as it goes through even the weakest of messengers. So it still demands that we listen. Calvin wrote of this as well. Haggai confirms here the same truth. The people received not what they heard from the mouth of mortal man differently than if the majesty of God had openly appeared to them. All right, Haggai showing up uh, on the, what was it, the 26th of August, 520 BC, was no less the word of God than the thundering voice from Sinai, however many centuries before. He goes on, we may then conclude from these words how many times it says, I mean, doesn't, do you hear this as you read that? Is this God and Haggai, <laughs> the voice of the Lord through his messenger's hand, the prophet that had been sent from the Lord, the voice of the Lord, the Lord says, the Lord says over and over in this short book. We may then conclude from these words that the glory of God so shines in his word that we ought to be so much affected by it whenever he speaks by his servants as though he were nigh to us face to face. So we must pay attention to God's word with humility. Hearts that are not too proud or hard or stubborn to receive correction. Oh, I, I'm, I'm a fool in that I, I don't love correction, right? The word says that. Fools despise correction. May the Lord make that not true of us. Don't be hard-hearted uh, like the donkey that needs <laughs> whip, right? Humility we hear God's word. And, and we must also, we must pay attention with, with fear, knowing that, God, that eternal things are at stake as we hear God's word. People paid attention. They obeyed. That's how, what kind of we know that they paid attention. That's actually part of paying attention. That's part of, of following through with God's word is actually obeying what it says. God said, go chop down some trees and build my house right now. And they did. You had a sense there, there are a few weeks that pass uh, going and chopping down trees and 
bringing them. There's some logistics. So some would think that they delayed in their obedience. I don't think that that's the case. I think that they were organizing the work and they get to it because God does not confront them again uh, with their inactivity. So they obeyed. They obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet. The ESV has as the Lord their God had sent him. Uh, the NIV, I, like, I think that they translate that a little bit better, get the sense through it, because the Lord their God had sent him. Haggai comes and says, go to the woods, chop down trees, build the house. And the people go to the woods and chop down trees and build up his house. Why? Because they believed that God had sent Haggai. They recognized what was being spoken was God's word. Paying attention to God's word involves simple, straightforward obedience that God's people demonstrated here. And then note the next phrase as it says something else about their motivation in paying attention and obeying God's word. Right at the end of verse 12, do you see that? And the people feared the Lord. The people feared the Lord. So what is this fear? Fear is often, as one author said, often used to refer to the attitude of reverence and awe that should characterize us before God. Uh, Something that's very similar really to kind of like faith. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, recognizing the greatness of God in contrast to our smallness. That's not really the expression here. It's not the usual expression, expression, excuse me. Rather, when it says the people feared the Lord, it indicates a consternation and fright. For example, it's, the, it's that, this version, this, this phrase that expresses the people's fear of the fire at God, of God at Mount Sinai in Deuteronomy 5. Okay? Standing before a mountain, gathered together, warned not to come too close or you'll die. And then like this hurricane, tornado, volcano, thunderstorm. I'm not sure what else I'm missing. Darkness ascending on this cloud. And it's just like, by the way, that's the God who brought you out of Egypt. You had better listen. And they're like, oh, that's, oh, I feel a happy awe about this. It's kind of like, where was the line? Stepping back. Because I don't want to die, right? That's, that's the fear of the Lord. That's not every expression of the fear of the Lord. It's certainly a broad phrase, but we can't keep fear out of fear. And sometimes as we define it, look at it in different ways, we can be like, oh, but we're not supposed to be afraid of God's power or judgment. Yes, you are. Right? That's not all of our relationship to him, but we can't miss that. These people, some of them had watched family members, neighbors, dragged into the streets by the Babylonians and murdered before their eyes. And then they, at what, five, six, seven years old, were taken to a foreign land to live among strangers. And then to hear from the prophets, why exactly did this happen? This was your God responding to your sin. What what would that do other than, oh, the fear of the Lord? And now they're back. God's blessing has come on them, return to the land in his promise. Then to find out, do you know why you haven't had good crops for the last 16 or 18 years? Do you know why you're cold even though you keep putting on more clothes? Do you know why everything in your life seems futile and empty and pointless and you're banging your head against the wall? Do you know why that is? Because I am against you, God says. Right? If you have the whole picture of what God has done with his people, would you not expect that to be like, oh no, we are following the same path as our ancestors. Remembering those curses that were spoken by God, right? With the pain still on their hearts, not of something that happened to somebody else, but something that happened to them, their brothers and sisters, their parents, their grandparents. They were afraid of the power and judgment of God. Fearful images of God in scripture include wielding a sword as judge, sending his wrath, crushing like grapes. These things are meant to, and God as a consuming fire, not just as an Old Testament image, but right, our God is a consuming fire quoted in Hebrews to a new covenant people. This is not, I got you people, they were supposed to be in terror then, but Jesus is nicer now, right? This is not, this is not what the Bible says. God used to be mean, 
but now he's nice. No, God has always been merciful and gracious, and God will always be just, righteous, and wrathful, right? Those are his perfections across all time. These things are meant to sober us up to important spiritual realities. They come to know that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, and they found that they were doing the same thing, and it was not because of their faithfulness. The people were afraid of the consequences of continuing to disobey God, and that is not a bad thing. It's just not the only thing. Do you hear that? Fearing God, the consequences of your sin, that is good, it's true, that is right. It's not a bad thing, but again, it's not the only thing. Having heard God's rebuke, they paid attention. They obeyed and they feared. But that's not the only way that we respond. It's next vital for us to remember the gospel of God's promises. This is what the people do as well. They did indeed pay attention to God's word. They obeyed him. They feared him. And as they did that, the Lord speaks again. Verse 13. And I, that's, that's cause and effect. He didn't just make them wait. Just let them sit there and stew on it for a while. They're like, well, let them get, you know, let them be, let them be really good and afraid. And then we'll say something else. But God knew their thoughts. God knew their intentions. And he sends his messenger again in verse 13. Then, then right after they're fearing the Lord, as they're fearing the Lord, Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. Do you see what the Lord's message is? I am with you declares the Lord. Having just emphasized the importance of fearing God, it would be really easy to hear this as a stern reminder. I'm watching you. Like stoking their fear of condemnation. Right? Fueling their fear of rejection. But that I'm watching you, right? That is not, absolutely not, What God is saying here, I am with you, is a promise of God's faithfulness to relieve their fear and to comfort them and to strengthen them. I am with you is is a common phrase in scripture. It comes to God's people to draw them back to his promises. Frequently. Here's a few examples. God told Isaac, fear not, fear not, for I am with you. Genesis 26. Later, God promised Jacob, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. You see, that's not, I am, I am with you and might be against you. I'm with you, stay in line. It's like, no, actually, my blessing will be on you. I am, I am with you. Genesis 39, what an amazing chapter. Joseph just goes from bad to worse. It's in that chapter that he goes to Potiphar's house. Things start to turn, and they get worse. He ends up in prison. Like, oh, prison. And that gets a little bit better, and then it, and that goes down. Again, I hate it when that happens in stories, but it really hooks you in, right? It's like, why can't things just go well for this character? It's like, well, then there wouldn't have been a story. Genesis 39 certainly lives that out. But Genesis 39 repeatedly says that God was with Joseph in Egypt. Why did he have success in Potiphar's house? Because God was with him. Why did he have success then as a slave? Because God was with him. Then ultimately, why did, how did he leave the lowest a slave to prisoners? How did he leave that position to become second in command in Egypt? Because the Lord was with him. Verse 21 of Genesis 39, the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. God calls Moses. Moses doubts about his own ability to stand before Pharaoh, and God answers that doubt with the promise, but I will be with you, which should be like, oh, great, let's go. (laughs) Not exactly how we respond, not how Moses responds. Joshua was not to fear leading God's people because God told him, I will be with you. And what will that look like? I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Gideon and Judges, David, Jeremiah, they all received the same promise. 
Psalm 46 declares the Lord of hosts, same title used in this, right? Power, uh, the Yahweh over angel armies, the God of all might and power and victory. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. All of that power, all of that strength, it can be tempting to think because of our sin that's going to be God against us. When you're on his side, when you're his child, it's the power of God that is with you, that is, that is for you. Don't we all love, that? that's repeated twice in that. Okay, so God was with the old covenant people, made these promises that he was with them, but is God with us? God with us. How does that translate into Hebrew? You might not know very many Hebrew words, but you might know this one. Many know how you would say God with us in Hebrew? Anybody? Emmanuel. This baby, right? We can talk about this even though it's not Christmas. I don't know if you knew that. And it's not Christmas. Home Depot, Christmas tree's out already. Settle down, all right? Let's dive back to the text. That was not the word of God. <laughs> that was Peter. Lest we think that God, that I am with you as spoken to through Haggai or to Joshua or to Moses or to David or to Jeremiah, other people, lest we think that this was just an Old Testament promise made to someone else at another time. Jesus was saying he, he will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And after his resurrection, right, bookends of his life and ministry, right, this baby, it's God with you. God born as a human to walk among you and to live in your place and to suffer in your place. And then after his resurrection, just before his ascension into heaven, the last words that Matthew record from us are what? The promise to his disciples, which comes to us as well. I am with you always. How long is always? To the end of it all, right? Until... I'll be with you by my spirit, we find out, is what he's talking about, until I come to bring you back with me, and then we'll be together. You'll be with me, and I will be with you for eternity. Promise that we're looking forward to. I am with you is a necessary reminder as we respond to God's rebuke, because what it means is, is I am for you, right? This isn't just like God is, is around some people's lives like location and he's not in other people's lives. Which is like, well, this, this isn't talking about omnipresence, right? God is everywhere all the time. So in that way, you know, by, by his, the presence of his spirit, his eye watching, his knowledge of what's going on, his activity in people's lives, be like, well, God's with everybody. In a sense, it's like, well, Yes, in that sense, but that's not what this is talking about. That's why when we say I'm with you, we need to also hear I am for you as opposed to I am against you. Because of their unfaithfulness, God had, was there, but he was against them. And now he's saying I'm here as I've always been here, but I'm, I'm going to be working for you, not opposing you, but helping you. So if God is for us, we can link that promise to the truth Paul expounds on in Romans 8, a whole series in and of itself, that if God is for us, then who could be against us? Satan, emperors, enemies, sickness, death. God is for us. Who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, right? There's the gospel tithe. He did not spare his own son. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? When we are chastised by God, when we are reproved by his word, when we are rebuked and reminded of our ongoing sinfulness, that's what happens with rebuke, right? It's like, look at the word, you're wrong. Like, well, but, no buts. You're wrong. That was sin. This pattern, this, this priority, this action, these words, sin. 
reminded of our ongoing sinfulness. And then we think, it's like, well, what does the scripture say? Scripture says sin separates us from God. So because of my sin, there must just be this distance. So then we're like, well, how can God be with me? How can God be with us? How can God be for us while we are still sinners? And the answer, of course, is Jesus. Like, how can God be with a sinful people? Just because they'd gone to the woods and chopped down trees and had intentions to start building the house, just because they responded in obedience and fear didn't mean that they weren't sinning in all sorts of other ways. So how can God be for a sinful people? And it's because he doesn't see them as a sinful people. He sees them through Christ. The life, death, Resurrection of the Son of God on our behalf enables the promise of I am with you. So when the sting of rebuke is still fresh, I felt that sting of correction a lot as a child. You feel the sting in your heart of having to have admit and confess before the Lord that you sinned against him. No excuses, no just I chose to dishonor and disobey. When you feel that sting and it's still fresh, remember your justification. Pay attention to that. And then as it stings, remember, okay, but this cannot affect my relationship before God. I am declared righteous, not because I did or didn't sin, but because of Jesus and my faith in him. Simply by faith in Jesus Christ, you have been made eternally right with God. If you have exercised that faith. And when God looks at you, he sees Jesus' perfect righteousness as the basis of his relationship with you. Never, ever encounter God's word and the rebuke that it has without the reminder of, of who and what you are before him. Okay? Remember the gospel, you are justified. And then also you need to keep in mind the difference between God condemning you because of your sin and God chastising or disciplining you because of your sin. Right? God being eternally against and his wrath abiding on you, right? that cannot stand for any who are justified. Romans 8 again, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So because of justification, it cannot be God coming to crush you with his wrath, leading you to hell. It is not God's righteous wrath falling on you because of your sin. It cannot be because that was born by Christ. No condemnation is left for you. But that doesn't mean that there's not discipline and chastisement that comes from God and from his displeasure about your sin, the punishment of God's wrath already on Christ, no wrath is left, your debt is paid, but that starts an aspect of relationship with God. Remembering that we are adopted, which makes us children of God, which makes him our father, and fathers are supposed to discipline their children, which is chastisement and correction. God the Father sets that pattern, and then we follow that. He's the perfect father, so he's not going to let our sin go uncorrected. And that's what's happening here. It's like, oh, that, oh, good. So I'm going to get spankings from God. Yes. And that's good news. Oh, yes. Because if you are not experiencing chastisement from God over that in your life, which needs correcting, and there, there's something, and there always will be something in all of our lives that needs correcting, if God perpetually ignores that, and there's never any trials or difficulties in your life that point out your sin and draw you closer to him, if none of that ever happens, you are not a Christian. God, it's like, this is a hard decision, right? This requires a wisdom that, is, that, that is, seems still a little bit out of reach because it's, it's kind of a tough pill to swallow, right? Choosing between God leaving you alone to enjoy everything and God correcting you through hardship and trial. Like, which is the better option? It's God correcting you. God's chastisement 
And the sting of the rebuke from him should not drive you away from him. It's meant to draw you closer to him because that's how he treats all of his children. Through hardship, he corrects God's chastisement, rebuke, it's training, it's discipline. Discipline that's proof of your fatherly or son-daughter relationship with him. Proof of your adoption. Is God at work in your life, sending trial, sending suffering to reveal your sin and to convince you of your need for him, then count it all joy. That's not whistle a happy tune when you leave the bedroom where you got the spanking, but just know that it's for your good. It requires wisdom. God's discipline should not frighten us, but its, def- its absence definitely should. Trials of various kinds are sovereignly placed in our lives by God as part of his eternal plan to sanctify his people and transform us to be like Jesus. Those trials, that suffering, those difficulties, it's not without a purpose. It's not an accident. And it's not something that happens that then God comes alongside just be like, oh, they're there. I'm so sorry that that happened. I don't know why that happened. Oh, I despise that misconstrual that error, that horrible uh, hope, trust, sucking lie that God is not involved in the suffering that comes into our lives, right? Uh, Jesus knew Lazarus was going to die. Jesus, knowing that Lazarus was going to die, did not go and stop it because there was a plan not just for Lazarus, but for Mary and Martha to increase their faith and the disciples and us, right? That man was born blind for however many decades, living in suffering for him and his parents so that the works of God might be displayed in him, right? It's, it's not helpful to your faith or your trust in God to try to distance God from our suffering as if he wasn't involved. Right, to be like, oh, Job, that was just Satan. Right, Satan who had no permission to do anything if God didn't say, have you looked at Job recently? Okay, you can do this, but you can't do this. Okay, now you can do this, but you can't do this. Right, Job had, Satan had no sovereign power over this until God said, go after him because I'm gonna display my glory in this. I have a purpose to discipline and train my righteous servant, Job, for his good and for my glory and to teach my people for millennia, right? Don't, don't try to make excuses and take God out of suffering, okay? It's, like a, it's, it's just like a, a Band-Aid when you've got a, a rupture inside. It's just like, let me just put a Band-Aid over that. No, there's bleeding happening and, and some surgeries needed. God has sovereignly placed these trials in our life for our sanctification to make us like Jesus, Jesus who was made perfect by what he suffered, shown to be without sin through trials that he endured. God is doing the same thing in us and we too will be brought to spiritual maturity by walking that same path. And in all of this then, as you pay attention to God's word through the sting of rebuke, remembering the gospel promise that God is with you because of Jesus, I'm gonna say you can also then step back And with confidence, trust that God is at work. God is at work. Not just God is at work in bringing the trials, but in accomplishing that purpose, which requires, something's happening here. And what is happening is God is doing something. And this is in verse 14. Verse 14 ends by showing, you see the end of that, so maybe start at 15, work backwards. How did they respond? They came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. In other words, God's chastisement in their lives and his rebuke through the mouth of Haggai the prophet had been effective, right? He may only have two chapters to his name and Isaiah has what, like 66? But like in one sermon, God did more through Haggai than he did through Isaiah because Isaiah was told nobody's gonna listen to you and they didn't, right? Haggai, they're all like, we're on it. You want us to go to the woods? Let's get our axes. We're going to the woods, We're chopping down trees. We're going to build the house of the Lord. They, they listen. That's not comparing like Haggai was better than Isaiah. I'm just saying, you know, you might not have known his name other than as a list. And you definitely knew Isaiah. Just gets a bad rap. Second shortest book, all that. 
But God's rebuke through the mouth of Haggai had been effective. Those rebukes, the 16 or 18 or 20 years, whatever it was, of all of those crops and all that hardship, it had accomplished its purpose. Earlier in verse verse 14, we learned the ultimate decisive reason why their obedience took place. That's important, right? Because we want to have our own reasons for obeying. We want to obey. So like, how did they get from point A, sin, to point B, rebuke, to point C, obedience? Like, how, what was the, the path? How did it do this? Was it fear of judgment? Was it the, the fear of the Lord? They're like, oh, we don't want him to kill us. So we'll obey. We'll go get the trees. Please, please, please don't hurt me. Is that all that it was? Just fear of judgment? Was that the emotional pressure from Haggai's preaching? That, that bony prophetic finger pointing in their face. Was he just such a good preacher that he motivated them enough? Or had they finally been convinced of the importance of the task? You know what? Our house, God's house, that's, that's obviously so much better. So some sort of pressure, convincing, motivation, fear. No, none of these things were the ultimate decisive reason for the people's repentance and obedience. It actually came from God. Look at verse 14 again. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel. He stirred up the spirit of Joshua. He stirred up the spirit of all the remnant of the people and they came and worked. I want to remind you again, nothing good happens in us. Nothing good happens through us without God first starting it. Nothing happens without God taking that initiative. His gracious work in our lives is always the ultimate decisive reason for our obedience or our response. Without him, we could never believe, we could never repent, we could never obey. Jesus put that very plainly, without me, you can do nothing. And he meant that. <laughs> nothing. Unless Christ is with you and you are following him in that way. So then there's the question, the Lord or the people? The Lord stirred up, they obeyed. So which happens first? Like, well, I just said the Lord stirs up first. The text says the Lord stirred up and then they obeyed. So how do we do that? How do we understand because then we're like, okay, so to get from point A to point, you know, point A, sin, to point C, obedience, kind of just have to wait around for God's rebuke, and then eventually maybe he'll stir me up and I'll do something about it. So I'll just sit here, waiting, passively, because if God's not, I can't do anything without God. So if God's not going to do anything, I can't do anything. So I just won't do anything until God does something, right? See how easy that is, how common it's like, which, which one is it? Am I, am I desperately working out of fear and motivation and emotional pressure? Or am I just sitting around waiting until God does something in me? There's a mystery in the relationship between God's sovereign control over all things, the moral responsibility we bear for our choices and actions. God called on the people to obey, and they did obey. But they would not have obeyed if it were not for God's work. They would not have obeyed if he had not stirred up their spirits. If he had not motivated them, not externally, but internally, stirring up their, their spirit to where they wanted to do that. He, he aroused their affections for God's priorities over their own. They were, they were convinced, not just from Haggai, but from the word of the Lord working in them to be like, oh yeah, I, you know, I, I do want the Lord's house. His name, his glory that he's, he's obsessed with and committed to and all of his energy, like, yeah, I want that. Like, I want what God wants. That does motivate me for this. Without God's work in us, we will never choose him, we will never trust him, we will never obey him. We are too far given over to our sin, sin which we love, too far given over to want anything other than sin and the fulfillment of our sinful desires. The problem is in our spirits or it's in our hearts, so we must be made new before we can leave, live new lives. We are never told, we are never told to wait to be changed. God doesn't tell them, give me a few weeks to work in your hearts and then you should start obeying. What does he say? No, he just says, go to the hills, right? Don't, don't wait for change and then obey. He just says, go obey. 
And then as his word is going forth, his spirit is also working in their hearts, stirring that up. And they're like, yeah, let's, let's go obey. And then they go and they obey. He tells his people, stop sinning and get to work. There are two passages. Always hard to go to another passage and not also exposit that. But I think that at their face, they get this point across well. God working, us working. Where, what is the relationship? Both from Paul, first Corinthians 15.10 is the first of these. Paul writes, By the grace of God, I am what I am, an, an apostle. His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of the other apostles. I worked harder, though it was not I. I mean, it, it's hard for me to even say I worked harder because it was the grace of God that is with me. Who worked Paul, I worked harder. He worked hard, put forth effort and energy, battled for this, harder than anyone else. But was it Paul on his own? Certainly not. It was the grace of God at work in Paul that enabled Paul to work so hard for the cause of Christ's kingdom. Another amazing passage in Philippians chapter 2, where Paul writes to a whole church, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Boy, that echoes Haggai to me. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for, because what's already happening and will continue to happen, for God is, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So who is at work in our faith and in our repentance and in our obedience and in our sanctification? Who is at work? God is at work. Then who's responsible to work that out? Who's responsible to stop neglecting what must be done? Who's, who needs to stop not building? Double negative. Who needs to stop not building the house of the Lord? Who needs to go get the trees and bring them in? Uh, we must work. We must do so with fear and trembling, but we're never alone and we never receive the credit or glory for what is done. After all, God is the one who has stirred up our spirits. In a sense, it's like, so do I wait? No, you obey. Right? Oh, so it was me? No. No. <laughs> but you told me, I need, yeah, go build. All right, I'm going to go build. So that was, that was me, right? Good job. No, the Lord did that. Oh, okay. And it can be so, I think there's a tendency for us to shift back and forth from self-reliance to that passivity. We can go just like, all right, I will do more. I will be better. Me, 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 me. And then we've, we fail. Rely on ourselves disconnect ourselves from the vine, work in our own strength and fall flat on our face. Like, again. And then we read passages like, oh, it's, you know, it's the Lord who stirs up the spirit. It's like, oh, okay, 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 yeah. Whew. I shouldn't have worked. should have waited for God. It says, wait on the Lord. I need to wait on the Lord. So yeah, don't, don't work. Wait. And the Lord will work. Okay. He says, obey. I'm like, yep, I will. As soon as you get me going on that. I'm just going to wait here. Nope. <laughs> it's kind of tension back and forth between these things. We'd be like, oh, I'm helpless, so I guess I'll just wait for God to change me, or it's like, oh, me. But neither of these match Paul's instructions. Work for God is at work. You know, Westminster talks about this as well. Uh, another um, book or, or pastor pointed this out. I think it's chapter 16. Speaking of Christians, the importance of good works, their ability to do good works is not at all of themselves, but wholly from the spirit of Christ. Sounds exactly what I'm trying to say. They just do it in a paragraph and I did it in like 10 minutes. And that they may be enabled thereunto besides the graces they have already received, there is required an actual influence of the same Holy Spirit to work in them to will and to do of his good pleasure. Obviously quoting Philippians. Yet they are not hereupon to grow negligent as if they were not bound to perform any duty unless upon a special motion of the Spirit. But they ought to be diligent 
in stirring up the grace of God that is in them. And how does this happen? God changes in an ongoing way. God changes what is wrong in us. Calvin said we, we should never be attentive to his word were he not to open our ears. There would be no inclination to obey were he not to turn our hearts. In a word, both will and effort would immediately fail in us were he not to add his gift of perseverance. You wouldn't want to and you wouldn't have the strength to obey. You wouldn't want to obey and you wouldn't have strength to obey if it were not for God in you. But you read the promises, trusting the gospel. God says, I'm there to change your affections. I'm there to strengthen your effort. So go to the hills, chop down the trees, and glorify my name in building this temple. This is the Godward emphasis of this passage, emphasizing God's work, his word and his work, and then how his people, his children respond to them. It's on God's initiatives. Right? Who spoke to the people through his messenger? God did. Right? And, and who promised gracious and abiding presence? Who worked and spoke and promised to counteract sense of fear and guilt? God did. And who activated the people to engage themselves to work on his temple? God did. So we look at this and be like, this is us. Let's do better. It's like, God because of God, work. God has spoken. So if you have heard, it's because he has given you ears to hear. Today. God has spoken. If you have heard, it's because God has given you ears to hear. And God has promised his grace. So if you are comforted, it's because his spirit has assured you. And God's strength is effective and sufficient. So if, you, if you're obeying, if you continue obeying, it's only because he has stirred up your spirit. So we pray, may God continue and even expand and deepen his work in us. By the grace of God that is with me, I have once again spoken to you the word of the Lord of hosts. And I pray that you pay attention to it. That you remember the gospel promises contained in it and that you trust with gratitude and confidence that God is at work in you. Lord of hosts, thank you that you are with us, not because of our deserving of it, because of your grace which we have with us in the person of Jesus Christ. Please convict us of sin, remind us of the gospel that you are with us, Help us to trust that you are at work in us as we work for your glory. Amen.